Welcome to Epiphany, the podcast where we discern what is good, acceptable, and perfect by the renewal of our minds in the light of Christ. Hey guys, welcome back to the Epiphany Podcast for our next episode. I appreciate you guys listening and sticking with me this long. I guess if you survived the first couple episodes, it can't be that bad. So um, today we're going to talk about confession. Um, It's one of the hot topics and discussions among Christians or whatnot, and it's one of the more beautiful elements of the Catholic faith. And so I figured we'd jump right in and discuss confession. But before I do that, I just want to make a couple, kind of a couple housekeeping notes. Um, First of all, I didn't say this explicitly, but my plan is to publish episodes every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. So if you're wondering... um, if you're wondering about when they're going to come or whatnot, I don't have social media. That's just something um, I don't believe in it. I don't think it's good for me, at least. And so I don't have any way of publishing these or advertising these things. So just make note, 10 a.m. on Sundays is when I'll be publishing these things. Uh, make sure to follow on the various um on the various mediums and stuff, and you will you'll get notifications. And um, next point two is I'm totally open to taking questions. If there's particular topics or questions about topics I've already discussed that you want to kind of go a little more specifically into anything, um, you are always free to send questions my way. Um, I'm pretty sure almost everybody listening to this podcast knows how to get in touch with me. And so, um, yeah, just shoot me an email or whatnot and send me some questions. And I may even do like a special Q&A bonus episode where I just go through random questions here and there and just answer all those. So I want you to know I'm open to that. It may even become its own episode one day. Who knows? So anyway. But without further ado, I want to introduce, I'm not running solo today for confession, but I brought on a very special guest and uh, John Parker, welcome. Thank you, Father. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for volunteering to do this. Uh, It was actually John Parker who really... um, who really wanted to talk about confession. And I said, well, hey, let's hop on the mics and, you know, record what we have to discuss. I always enjoy talking to John. And John's actually a convert, um, a very a relatively recent convert. And I don't want to take too much of his story. But before we begin, John, do you want to kind of introduce yourself? Um, yeah, I was a convert from the Presbyterian faith. Um, growing up, I we had like communion in some of the sacraments, but in baptism, but we really had no form of confessional. So when I came into the church, it was completely brand new. And this idea of getting forgiveness for your sins, because I grew up in that very, you know, predestination mindset. So it was like, it's already been decided for you. Right. Yeah. No. Okay. That's awesome. Where are you from? Uh, I'm from Montgomery. Um, Grew up in Montgomery Academy, very secular school. So very little religious formation growing up. Sure. didn't have a chance to really grow until I got to Auburn and found some really good friends here at Mitchum. Yeah, praise God. Yeah, um, my brother is uh, the chaplain over at Montgomery Catholic, and so I hear about MA a lot, and it's rarely in positive context because of their rivalry or whatnot. I'm sure there's a lot of Montgomery Catholic grads. Shout out to you guys who are in in town. So I'm glad that you um, I'm glad that you discovered yeah the Catholic community or whatnot. Um, tell me how how long. I was actually curious about this, and I haven't, I haven't asked you this before, but how long from kind of first contact with a Catholic friend to crossing the Tiber? Oh, well, my I was introduced to Catholic faith by my buddy Wilson. Most of you probably know him. But he knew I was kind of shopping churches at a time. And yeah. early in college, I was going around to the different denominations, and he kind of tricked me into showing up to RCA, saying it was like Protestant Wednesday church, and that it would be— I'd be surrounded by people that are Catholic, and I could hear what they have to say without anyone noticing me. I walk in. They said, um, here, sign this. You become Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> and then I've been listening to the Bible in a Year podcast and been hearing a lot about the Old Testament you know, religion and all that. And at RCA, they kind of said a lot of the same things I've been hearing. And I was like, it really clicked with me. So it was fairly quick that I was just like, I'm going to stay and listen to this. Yeah. That's awesome. So when did you come into the church? Remind me. It wasn't this past year. It, it was not this Easter, but the year before. So I'm at about a year and a half now. Yeah, right on. Are you enjoying it? I love it. It's life-changing. <laughs> Praise God. Praise yeah. God. Well, we're glad you came over. Um, 
tell me, you said that, you know, coming from, coming from a Presbyterian tradition, no, no experience with confession and the sacrament of confession, um, before. So that would have been relatively new. What was like the, what was kind of the, the, or there probably were many, but what was the big turning point for you on this particular sacrament? Was there like a moment or realization that was like, oh yeah, this is it. I mean, it is, I feel like the sacrament of reconciliation is almost a physical thing, a spiritual thing for me at times. Because I remember that first time I went in very nervous. I didn't really know what I was doing. But the moment that I was told you are forgiven, go in peace, I was like, I felt just a weight off my shoulders. Hmm. Like I just felt that physical lightness that came about with being in communion with the Lord. And, you know, when that, when that relationship gets ruptured and all that stuff, I was like, all I can think about is getting back into confessional and getting it right because I don't want to feel that weight on my shoulders and feeling him take all that off and feeling that, you know, just, I never heard the word forgiven before. Hmm. It was all just, you know, it's been decided growing up. So being told that you can be forgiven was just life changing for me. Yeah. Praise God. That's actually maybe a good place to start um, moving into the sacrament of confession because so the sacrament of confession, we we keep calling it sacrament. and, And that word literally is taken from the Latin word sacramentum, which literally means sacred, sacramentum is, is mystery. So sacred mystery. Um, and so the idea is the Jesus Christ, we believe in the church, Jesus Christ established seven sacraments, seven sacred mysteries um, that he gave to his people and his followers and to the church to, to safeguard and to perpetuate. And those seven sacraments then extend or, or or break open the Lord's grace into the world. And so um, when we talk today, we'll, we'll get probably back into this in a moment, but there's, we all, most, I mean, almost all Christians, if not all Christians, kind of agree on the fact that, right, like God is the one who does everything. He's got all the power. He's got um, all the grace. He's got complete control over all the situations. Um, and where the sacraments come into play is not so much like the church is doing this as much as it's the Lord is doing this, but he has chosen certain means to accomplish the ends that he's trying to accomplish. And and, and we'll we'll get a little more into that in a second. But the sacraments, the seven sacraments, and what you just highlighted is there's something not only spiritually efficacious or effective about the sacraments, but they also are physical. And so just a really brief primer on sacramental theology. Um, We believe that sacraments are visible signs of invisible realities, or maybe they're visible signs of an invisible grace instituted by Christ for the spreading and the, and the gifting of grace by God to the whole of mankind. That's, that's what a sacrament is. And so if it's a visible sign of an invisible reality, there's not only the forgiveness of sins, like in confession, or there's not only the forgiveness of original sin and the induct in, in, um, in the initiation of a soul into the body of Christ that we get in baptism, but there's also these visible elements that make those invisible elements known to us and also affect those things. And so, um, one of, one of my Kind of the analogy I keep falling back to, and I, I created, I made this up, this analogy, so it's kind of a little wonky or whatnot, but I think it gets the point across. Um, a sacrament is a sign, but it's not just a sign, right? Um, for example, um, you, you know a stop sign. And I would pray and hope that all of you know what to do with a stop sign, although I drive around enough that I get suspicious <laughs> that people don't know what they're supposed to do with a stop sign. But you get to a stop sign and the stop sign communicates to you that you need to stop at this intersection, at this particular line, right? And that's what a stop sign does. It's a symbol. It's a sign that communicates something to you. But we all know, as I've alluded to already, we, you don't have to stop. Like the stop sign's not going to do anything if you disobey it. It's not going to actually stop your car. Well, a sacrament is like a stop sign. That also then would stop your car for you. It's a sign that does what it symbolizes. That's what a sacrament is. And so we have three sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist in that order, by the way. Then we also have two sacraments of healing, 
one ordered towards more towards the body, which is anointing of the sick, which was in, in kind of in older times was called last rites. But that sacrament's not just reserved for people who are dying, but that's the one. And then the other sacrament of healing is ordered more towards the soul, which is the sacrament of confession, our topic for today. And then the sixth and seventh sacraments are sacraments of vocation. And so they are holy matrimony, you know, marriage, and uh, holy orders. And it's the sacrament that priests receive when they're ordained to the priesthood. And so those are the seven sacraments. So just a little touch on, um, it's a little bit on kind of some intro to sacramental theology, because these points will be important as we discuss them. And I think kind of your witness, John, is, is very much a witness that the sacraments are not only invisible realities, but they're also visible realities. They, they, they make themselves manifest. And this makes sense too. Um, remember our, kind of our, 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 um, our titular feast day is the epiphany and it falls during Christmas season, which is the season of the incarnation. If Jesus Christ is God made manifest, right? If, if God becomes man, if the invisible God makes himself visible in a human nature, right? In a sense, like if that is how Jesus works, it makes sense that when he establishes his plan for salvation to be perpetuated through the sacraments, that those sacraments would also be invisible, made manifest in the visible. And so it kind of, it's just an extension of his incarnation is kind of how I think of the sacraments. And we can have maybe a, a bigger episode later on the sacraments because I think they're important to understand. But the visible and the invisible, the, the, the physical and the spiritual, all of that is wrapped up in the sacraments. And it's one of the more beautiful things about the sacraments themselves. And so, but we're here to talk about the sacrament of confession. And so, um, yeah, well, so welcome, John, and for all that, looking forward to it. Yeah, we'll jump into some questions. I'm going to try to put on my Protestant hat from two <laughs> yeah. years ago. Yeah. And first thing I would say would be just clearly from a Protestant mindset, you're talking about those sacraments, in particular confessional. Why should I take my sins to a priest instead of taking them directly to Jesus is what a Protestant would say. Like, why can't I just pray to Jesus and say, this is why I've sinned. Please forgive me, Lord. Like, why do I have to go to a church to do all this? Yeah, exactly. Um no, and that's a, that's a really great question, and that's kind of maybe maybe the first question, right? It's and I want to I want to acknowledge something too here that's not discussed much in this conversation is there is we have to acknowledge as human persons that we have a tendency to be ashamed of our sin, right? We have a tendency to be ashamed of our sin, and so for me, the hesitancy to go to a priest to confess your sins is totally understandable. But I think we need to, we need to acknowledge just the nature of like, we're just afraid to say what we've done. You know, we can rationalize in all these different ways, why it's not necessary, or maybe I just confess to God, but I mean, just breaking down brass tacks, like human nature, we all know that really the reason we don't want to confess our sins to another person is because we don't want to have to admit what we did to another human being. But that's not really an answer. That's just something I, I kind of want to draw to mind. But, okay, why do we have to go to a priest? Um, why do we have to go to the church at all to confess our sins? Why do we have to confess them to somebody else? Um, well, the quick answer is um, Jesus told us to. Jesus established that for us. Um, the pivotal text for the sacrament of confession um, is John chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. And this is when, this is after the resurrection, and Jesus has come to his disciples, um, his apostles up in the upper room, and they're hiding there for fear of the Jews, and they're just you know, Jesus just died. They have no idea what's going on. It's confusing. Some people saw him, but now he's not there anymore. And he's kind of the, the post-resurrection narrative is one of it's, 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 it's so glorious. Um, but it's also very disturbing, I think, because of how new it is for the, for the disciples. They don't quite know what everything means. Well, he comes to them. Jesus does. He comes to his apostles in the upper room. And you can read John chapter 20 and kind of get all this in detail. And I'd encourage you to do that. It's a really beautiful encounter. And perhaps most of all, because he comes to his apostles, all of whom, by the way, except for John, all of whom were completely absent in the moment of our Lord's like greatest misery, just gone. You know, um, they could not be found near our Lord. They were terrified of their own lives and they abandoned them on the cross. So just keep that in mind. And Jesus is coming back. Right. Which 
I'm sure for some of the apostles was very nerve wracking. And so Jesus comes into that room and he says, peace be with you. He just, he opens up with this, with this declaration of peace. He, he's not here to, to shove the apostles' noses and everything they've done wrong. He's not here to shame them for abandoning him. He says, peace be with you. And then he says, um, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And then he breathes on them. And that's an interesting moment right there, too. He breathes on them, and we'll talk about that. But he breathes on them, and he says, um, whose sins you forgiven are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. Okay. There's several things that happen in this moment. And and, and I kind of highlighted the three important things. The first thing that I want to look at is the second piece. Jesus breathes on them. Um, Only once other than this moment in scripture, does God breathe on somebody? And it is in the creation of Adam. He forms, he forms man out of the dust of the earth, and it says that he breathes the breath of life into him. Um, and so what he did in breathing on this, basically this mud pile that was going to become Adam is the dirt, which I always love as a scientist, the fact that, I mean, we are made of the same things as the earth. Like, it's, it's the same atoms, right? So it's anyway, beautiful, but way before it's time, scientifically speaking. But he takes the dust of the earth and he breathes on it. He transforms an unliving thing into a living thing. That's a completely, that's a transformation on the level of ontology, which the philosophers listening would understand what I mean. It's like, it's a different kind of thing. It's no longer the same kind of being. So the Lord's breath transforms what we are. And so when he breathes on his disciples, he breathes on his apostles, you should know immediately, if you're, if you're familiar with Old Testament scripture, you should know, whoa, like a transformation has happened. Just as dirt became a man, so too these apostles went from something into something else. And Jesus kind of tells us immediately, and we'll talk about the third thing now, second, which is whose sins you've forgiven are forgiven them and whose sins you retain are retained. Okay, so he gives them a new power that they did not have access to before. He gives them the power to forgive sins. And what he's saying, too, is like, when you forgive, I ratify it. You know what I mean? Like, when you forgive, the the forgiveness of God himself is echoed in that thing. It's not just, oh, go forgive each other, but then later, like, I'll come and, like, ratify it. Like, no, when you forgive, God forgives in that moment, right? Like your forgiveness, in a sense, is 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 what make which is what kind of makes God's forgiveness available, in a sense. And there's got to be kind of careful with those words or whatnot. I could be a little cleaner, but and then you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, he's sending out people to forgive, but he tells us all to forgive, right? He tells us to forgive each other. Um, but listen, let's go back to the first thing Jesus says to them. He says, "As the Father has sent me, so I send you." Think about that. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. The Father has sent Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. That's abundantly clear in the New Testament. It's said dozens of times. Um, Jesus is sent for the forgiveness of sins. And as the Father has sent Jesus, so too does Jesus then send his apostles out for the same mission. right? And he gives them the power to accomplish it. And that's like a really important thing to remember. So why, why do we go to the church for forgiveness? Because Jesus established that as the means by which we would be forgiven. It's, it's, it's a methodological thing. We all know that Jesus is the one who forgives us. We all acknowledge that Jesus is the forgiver of sins. God is the one who forgives sins. But the question still remains, how does that happen though, right? And that's, the, that's where the sacrament of confession kind of provides the profound answer. Well, jumping into all that, I would, one, say, would you say the breath of God would, from my point of view, that sounds like confirmation, sounds like that he's making them Christian, and then what's saying from there that I can't just go to my brothers and sisters in Christ to get that forgiveness, why do I have to go to the priest in particular? Yeah. Because yeah. I know it's a big Protestant thing of, like, there are some denominations that do confession, but they can do it to 
just their family members. They can do it to right. their neighbors. You can kind of go to anybody. It's 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 any Christian, quote unquote, has that same power. Exactly. Um, no, that's a great point. Um, and and I, and I and I like that you you hearken to confirmation, right? Like. Oh, the breath of God confirmation. Because you're absolutely right. Your intuition there is perfect because the breath of God is one of the titles for the Holy Spirit. That's kind of what a spirit is. It's a breath, like inspiration, you know, is the great like um, breath of the father to the son and the son back to the father. And so that's one of the more ancient analogies, like languages we use to refer to the Holy Spirit as the breath of God. And so you hearken to the the sacrament of the confirmation of the Holy Spirit in the Christian. Um, and confirmation is a whole other topic we can get to later, but that's that's good. Like you notice, you notice kind of the connection of the Holy Spirit there. And every time the Holy Spirit is imparted in a new way, or, or someone is transformed in a new way, there's, uh, there's also a concurrent sacramental anointing as well. Not to say that the only sacraments that confer the Holy Spirit are the ones with anointings. Is that what I'm saying? But the three sacraments that have anointing with, with, um, with chrism, with the, with the oil of, of anointing, are baptism, confirmation, and then holy orders. Holy orders is one of those sacraments that has an anointing um, an anointing ritual part of it. Like my hands were covered in, in chrism when that, that blessing, that oil that, that smells really good that you're put on the baby's head or on an adult's head when they're baptized. Again, when the Bishop comes and confirms, does the same anointing that that oil covers the hands of a priest. That's an important thing to remember. Um, the other reason it has to be the priest is because it was the apostles that were in the room. Jesus did not give that same authority and that same quote-unquote anointing to every disciple evenly. It's not like he gave every single disciple this this same ordination-esque kind of power. He he appointed the apostles for a particular reason. Um, and then I, and I want to I want to hearken to um, the letter of James chapter five for this as well. There's a, there's an important moment here that kind of is just an added layer of evidence for the point I just made. Cause you could say, well, we don't, I mean, John didn't give a perfect account of who all was in the room and all that kind of stuff. It's like, okay, fair, fair enough. But we take scripture as a whole. And so listen to this, John, uh, James chapter five, um, verses 14 through 17 is what I'm going to read. James says, is any one among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. Elijah was a man of like nature with ourselves, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and it did not rain. The reason I, I draw this moment into mind is already in the in the apostles' lives, they understand that the, the priests... So he says, now you may be thinking, well, it says elders of the church. Correct. The Greek word is presbyter. And presbyter is where we, that's what a priest is. That's what we call priest in the church. And so when he says elders of the church, we're not just talking about the older guys in the church. We're talking about the priests, the ones who have been consecrated for this particular mission. And he says, let them pray over them, anointing them with oil. Okay, so that's like an anointing of the sick. So already, bingo, we've got another sacrament um, on the way. But he also says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, this is kind of where the the little bit the the more technical point comes in in the biblical commentary because then they say well then he, but then James is saying confess your sins to one another as if basically confess your sins to to anyone but I don't think I don't think it actually reads that way I think it may seem that way in English but can pray uh, confess your sins to one another I, I think back and I'm gonna I'm gonna thank the the great apologist Tim Staples for this realization I'm not gonna plagiarize him without giving him some credit because he pointed this out and I was very I was kind of impressed by this, but Ephesians five is like one of the most, probably one of the most controversial texts in the New Testament, especially for feminists. And so it's that's the classic one: wives be subordinate to your husbands. And then it says, you know, husbands um, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And and there's there's a line in there that says be subordinate to each other out of love for Christ. Or, you know, be be subordinate to each to one another. 
He's speaking to the whole community of Ephesians, but because contextually he's talking about husbands and wives, it's clear that Paul is saying, be subordinate husbands and wives to each other, not everyone to everyone. And so in the same way, he's speaking very clearly about the role of presbyters in the life of the church. And so when he says, confess your sins to one another, I I don't think it's like a wild leap based on other biblical evidence that he's speaking, confess your sins to these elders who I just described have the power to forgive sins. That's kind of, that's why, that's why the priest. But I want to make another point because I think it's, I think this is fitting in a, in a more grand scheme. Why do I go to a priest? Well, um, you can look at the Old Testament, and then you can look at the New Testament, and then you can even look at kind of the book of Revelation. You can look at what, what John foresees as the heavenly liturgy and stuff. And it's very, very clear to me in all scriptural evidence, and this is an important point to remember um, about the Lord and about the way he works. The Lord is the primary cause or he's the primary actor. He is the one, right? I said this before. He is the one with all the power. He's the one with all the grace. He's the one that does everything. He's in complete control. But the Lord frequently, frequently, and I would say, I mean, almost exclusively, accomplishes his will through secondary causes, or another word for that is instrumental causes. The Lord forgives sins, but he does so through his priests. The Lord saved the people from slavery in Egypt, but he did so through Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses on the mountain, but he did so through a burning bush. The Lord came and saved all mankind from slavery to sin, but the Father did that through the Son, and the sons of, and the Son is the one who, who reconciled us, and he did it through a human nature. You know, like in a sense, right? Like there's always this, this cooperation between God and man, between God, who is the primary cause, the, the, the principal mover, the source of all power. And then he, he invites creation to join him in his mission, in his dominion, in his power to do what he wants to do. And this is evident right from the beginning. I mean, God makes Adam and Eve and he immediately appoints Adam and Eve to rule kind of over the earth that he created. And the idea and I'm kind of getting a little off track, but this is all relevant, so it's okay. But um, we say that, you know, man was created in God's image and likeness. And there's a there's a biblical scholar um, whose name is escaping me right now. Um, oh, uh, Heiser, Michael Heiser, who wrote about the, the, the idea of the image of God. What that means is what that means in the in the Hebrew is that man stands as God's representative on earth. So the idea is like man is his representative and ruling and leading on earth. And so the whole idea, everything I'm trying to get, everything I'm trying to say here is the fact that there are priests who stand in the person of Christ and forgive on his behalf. Not only do we have evidence for that in the New Testament, but that's like, that's a biblical principle from the beginning. I'll, 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 um, kind of divert your attention to Leviticus 19. You know, when the people wished to be forgiven, they had to come and bring a Holocaust offering. Um, and they were not the ones who offered the offering. They brought it to the <clears throat> priest and the priest offered it on their behalf and then they were forgiven. Does that mean that the priest forgave the sins? No, it just, it's God forgives, but the priest was acting as kind of an instrument of that mercy and stuff. And so there's a lot of evidence for that is, is all I'm trying to say. But. Yeah, well, that answered my second question of where was the authority of the priest to say your sins are forgiven. Clearly, that was just answered. But yeah, and I'll throw I'll throw another passage in there for that because that's it. Like the the priest gets their authority from Jesus. Jesus is the one who forgives. I can't like make that clear enough, right? Um, and for anyone listening, it's Jesus who forgives the sins. Um, but I would also divert you to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter two. Um, he even says he even says that um, when he forgives Paul, being like a presbyter, he's actually he's he's a bishop, he's an apostle of the church. When he forgives, he forgives quote unquote in the person of Christ. Now this is tricky because if you, if you guys flip open to your Bibles right now and go to Second Corinthians two ten, chances are your Bible will say in the presence of Christ. 
But the the Greek word there is prosopon, and it can be it can be translated both presence and person. But the reason we we can understand this as person, and the reason I would argue it is person, is because prosopon is the word that was used by the ancient church fathers in the councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon in the in the in the fifth century um, when they were defining the person of Jesus Christ. That's the word they used, and they would have spoken the same kind of Greek um, that 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 Paul would have been using and writing in. And so that's kind of it comes from the fact that the priest stands in the person of Christ. He's a he's a he's an image of Christ in that moment, right? And that's what a priest is really. Anyway. Yeah, well moving on to another question. Um one of the radical new things that were introduced to me when I was going through my conversion was venial versus mortal sins. Yeah, Never yeah. heard anything along those lines. And my first thought when I heard about this is I was raised with, isn't sin, sin, lesser, greater? Aren't they all the same? So why do Catholics teach that there are sins that are worse than others? Yeah. Um, again, because the Bible says so. <laughs> I will, yeah, I'll, um, I will divert your attention on this one to uh, the first letter of John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. And John clearly distinguishes, I don't have the passage memorized or right in front of me right now, but John distinguishes between there are some sins that are lighter and there are some sins that kill, that can kill the soul. He distinguishes between sins and gravity. Um, and the, we get the word mortal sin because it's a sin that kills, like it's a sin that kills mortal flesh. If that, if that, That's kind of where that word comes from and that's why we use that word. Venial sin would refer to sins that are not mortal and do not have the power to kill. You know, they don't, they don't destroy entirely your relationship with the Lord. They wound it. They hurt it. They, they drive wedges kind of in, in, in our, in our intimacy with the Lord. Um, but they don't completely destroy it. Um, and that's why that's, 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 that scripture passage is where it comes from. Now there's elsewhere in scripture where they say all sin is disgusting to God, right? It's despicable to God. And I totally would affirm that too. And so does the church. All sin is bad. You know, because a lot of people, and, and this is something we had kind of talked about as well, right? A lot of people have seen in the distinction between venial and mortal sins almost an excusing of lesser sins. Like, well, that's not a mortal sin, so it's quote unquote, it's like not a big deal. It's like, whoa, never been the posture of the church to say that. Also, that just like that kind of that just fails like the the common sense litmus test. You know what I mean? Like, are we really going to say that like small sins really don't matter that much? Like, that's ridiculous, you know? Um, and so, yeah, we, there is a distinction between mortal and venial sins, but the church has never used that as an excuse to say, ah, well, that sin's not quite as big of a deal. Sure, that sin doesn't hurt as bad, but it still is like offending the Lord. All sin is the spiritual Lord. And we believe as Catholics very firmly um, coming from revelations that nothing imperfect can enter the kingdom of heaven. So although you may not go to hell because of that venial sin, you're not ready for heaven either, you know? And so it's like all sin is worth getting rid of in your life, right? Starting with mortal sins, big, heavy sins that you struggle with. And then as you grow in holiness, then starting to remove those habitual venial sins as well, you know? Yeah, well, yeah, I was about to ask, does the church justify these small sins in making these distinctions between mortal and venial? But I guess we'll move on to the next question. Should you answer that too? But yeah. um, um, Why do we need to pray penance after the confession if you say my sins are forgiven? Like, why do I need to do this extra step if I've been forgiven? Yeah, no, I, that's, a, that's another great question. I love talking about that. And that actually brings us to another, like, really beautiful source of data that I haven't really tapped into yet, but will be helpful. Um, but first I'm going to answer the question, then I'm going to kind of provide this, this source of data. Why do we pray a penance? We pray a penance. Th th honestly, I, this analogy may be one of the more helpful ways to understand it. Um, say like, this is like classic old America analogy. I feel like everybody can kind of relate. Like you're, say you're playing baseball with your, with your buddies when you're a little kid in the front yard of your house. And uh, John say, you just are a total slugger, man. And you just like knock it way beyond the boundaries of the yard, but beyond the boundaries of the yard is probably someone else's yard or someone else's house or more pertinent to our analogy, someone else's window. And so say you're, that ball goes in through the window 
of your neighbor's house, windows broken. You may have freaked out a little old lady who, who knows who's living next to your house. There's several things that have to happen <clears throat> at this moment, right? Um, step number one is, or I'll ask this question, who do you need to go to apologize to? Well, first I need to go apologize to the little old lady. Yeah, the little old lady, you need to go apologize to the little old lady whose window you just shattered, right? Um, why, well, why don't, why don't you just go apologize to your parents? Well, because I didn't harm them, I harmed her. Exactly. And so that's something to remember, too, of why we confess to a priest. And that's like a little side point going back to a question. We confess to a priest because although your sin offends God first and foremost, your sin also offends the entire body of Christ. And so the priest stands not only in the person of Christ, but a priest also stands in representation to the whole church and to your brother man. And so you're kind of confessing to like three different people all at once in the priest, right? And so you have to go to apologize to the lady because you have to be reconciled with the person who you have harmed. And say you say your baseball was so crazy it bounced off of five people's windows and shattered all of their houses. You can't just apologize to one. You you got to go and make right every single person who's been harmed by this whole incident, right? That's like a basic kind of common sense thing. You got to go apologize to the little old lady and say the little old lady says, don't worry, Johnny, like, you know, you're, you're fine. I know you're just playing. Like, I forgive you. Is that the end of the story? Well, I guess not. The window's got to be fixed. Exactly. The window's still broken. You know what I mean? Like there's still damages that need to be healed. Right. And so the forgiveness is like the first step, right? Okay. We are reconciled. We see eye to eye. That's literally what the word reconcile means is to see eye to eye again. We've been reconciled, but now there's like little old lady probably shouldn't have to pay to fix her own window. You know what I mean? Like Johnny may have to do a a lemonade sale, you know, to to raise some money if he has to pay for it himself. Or in today's time, your parents will probably just pay for, pay for it and just, you know, rip you a new one and ground you or something. But, (laughs) but all that to say the window has to be fixed, right? There, there has to be some kind of repair to the damages. And it's not that you as a sinner are responsible for fixing the body of Christ that you hurt. It's not, it's not so much that because that, that really is the Lord's power to heal and to bind and to do that. What you are doing by your penance is you're acknowledging that your sin has wounded the body of Christ and you desire to make your life from that point forward part of the solution. And so what you're doing as you pray penance is you pray, quote unquote, in reparation for the sins. Say, Lord, I will offer the sacrifice of my praise. I will offer the sacrifice of these prayers. I will offer the sacrifice of my time in order to hopefully bring into the world more of your presence, more of your grace, more of your love, more of your charity, so that whatever I have wounded may be healed and bound up in a new way. And so that's what it is. It's the Lord doesn't need you to fix the world, but he chooses to work with you in doing that. And so your penance is just one really, really small way in which you decide to cooperate with God's healing and less with the enemy's destruction. That's kind of what a penance is, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, and I haven't forgotten my little data point I wanted to mention about penance as well, um, because this is, this is really important. So, the church fathers, right? We've talked a lot about scripture, what's in scripture immediately. And you could, you know, whatever, like you could, I could see you read all these same passages and think, I just don't see it the same way. I just don't see, you know, I think there's other ways to interpret it. Fair enough. You know what I mean? The scripture, scripture's tricky and it's not always obvious what's being said. But then my question would be, what's the next best source? Like if we're going to, because what Jesus says and teaches really matters, Right. So what's the next best option? And so I would say the next best option are what did the apostles say? What did the apostles do? And then what did their followers, the next apostles do? And the way they, how did they understand these teachings of Jesus? And so it brings up one of my favorite data sources for understanding the church's tradition is the church fathers. And um, I just want to point out a couple of those just for your own reflection. Um, the Didache, which was kind of like a catechetical text that was published that was back in the year 70 so we're not even we're not even 40 years removed from Jesus's passion death and resurrection and Barnabas who we know is a disciple of Paul uh, both the Didache and, the, and, and Barnabas re, uh, talk about the importance of confessing our sins as a way of preparing ourselves 
um, for prayer and for the celebration of the sacraments. Ignatius of Antioch in the year uh, 110, um, he talks about that you have to confess your sins in order to be united in communion with your bishop. So that's an important thing. Now you're, now you're talking about like union with the church is now an important part of confession. Then you have um, Irenaeus in 189 and Tertullian in 203. They acknowledge public confession as a, as a practice, like the idea that you would get up in front of everybody and confess your sins. So praise God, we don't have to do, do that anymore. That that practice has died away. But that was the thing. It's like your your confession was to the whole community, right? Like you had to reconcile yourself to everybody you heard. And we kind of mentioned that in the whole window breaking thing. But then there's Hippolytus in 215. And he talks about the ordination rite for new priests, and it includes in the ordination rite the power to forgive sins. Origen in 248, Cyprian of Carthage in 253, Basil in 374, John Chrysostom in 387, Ambrose in 388, Jerome in the same year, they all talk about confessing sins to the priest is a practice that is necessary for healing in the spiritual life. And all of these great saints, all these great church fathers, they talk about doing penance. Penance is wrapped up in all of these different writings and the fact that you sin, you do penance. You sin, you make reparations through your prayer and through your life of grace and practice. And so I just wanted to add that in. The church fathers abundantly, if you read their writings, you start to get a very clear sense of what the church teaches even today. Um, the last question in this little part I'd had was, are there sins that can't be forgiven? Yeah, so that's a that's a great one um, because that also kind of harkens to scripture, right? We we hear in um, in the gospels, um, we hear in the gospels in like Matthew twelve and Mark three and Luke twelve. We hear, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And so clearly, the Lord tells us that. All sins can be forgiven, and that's the that's the proper stance of the church. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven. But the Lord clearly says, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And there have been a lot of people who have debated exactly what blasphemy against the Spirit is. I stand alongside the church here, and I'm going to quote, um, I'm going to quote Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, paragraph um, 1864, 1864. It says that there are no limits to the mercy of God, but anyone who deliberately refuses to accept his mercy by repenting rejects the forgiveness of his sins and the salvation offered by the Holy Spirit. Such hardness of heart can lead to final impenitence and eternal loss. And so the only sin, in other words, what the catechism is saying, what the church believes, the only sin that cannot be forgiven is the sin of, of refusing the Lord's mercy. In other words, the Lord will not force his mercy upon you. He offers it to you as a free gift. And I'm telling you, and for anyone listening, this is really important. Any sin can be forgiven. There are no sins that the Lord cannot forgive. There are no, and there are also no sins that the Lord does not want to forgive. The Lord is eager and desperate to forgive your sins. If you have messed up and you feel like you're just too far gone and there's no hope for you, that is a lie from the enemy because the Lord desires desperately for your forgiveness. The only thing he cannot fix is what you do not allow him to fix, right? He's not going to force himself on you. We say that the Lord is a gentleman, right? He's not going to force himself on you. He, he wants you to cooperate with him. He wants you to join him. And so he's not going to force his forgiveness. But if you ask for it, he absolutely will forgive it. I think of the the parable of the prodigal son, right? Um, the son goes off and, and to ask your father, if you if you haven't read that, look, look up the prodigal son um, parable. It's really, it's, it's what, it's probably the most famous parable in in the gospels. It's kind of a bold thing to say, but it's probably true. I mean, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to think of one more famous than that, but the prodigal son, the, the, this younger son tells his father, I want my inheritance now which is basically like saying, like, I wished you were dead 
so that I could have the money you're going to give me. That's like, it's a pretty despicable thing to say to your father, but his father heavy of heart, you know, accepts it and gives, gives the money to his son and his son runs off to a foreign land. Um, which remember in Jewish times, you go off to a distant country, not a good sign in Jewish scripture. That means that you went off to live by another life. You went to live by another culture. You went to live by another law. And in Jewish times, remember, law is everything. That's what distinguishes us from the pagans. And so to go to a distant country, not a good sign. And sure enough, he blows all of his money on booze and other things. <laughs> and he ends up dirt poor and he starts and he ends up living with pigs, basically. And again, Jewish mind, living with a pig, not kosher. So that's like about as far down as you can get as a young Jewish man is living with pigs. So then he kind of wakes up and sobers up probably and realizes, oh my gosh, even my father's servants ate better than what I'm eating right now. And so he's like, I'm going to go back. I'm going to beg, you know, I'm going to beg the father to forgive me. I'm going to beg my father to forgive me. And he prepared this whole speech about, you know, how I've sinned against heaven and against you and all this stuff. And he practiced it. He probably rehearsed it every moment on his way back. Um, because honestly, his he deserved to be ignored by his dad for the rest of his life for what he said. But it says that when he was still a distance off, his father saw him and he ran to him and he embraced him. And what I love is the son kind of like begins his speech. He goes to like deliver his canned speech and the father just completely interrupts him. He's like, okay, we're not, we're not talking about that right now. My son is returned. Put the rings on his fingers, the sandal on his feet, put the robe around him, which again, he's, he, he is, he is readopting him as a son. He, he, he's not going to let him go serve with the servants. He's like, you were my son and you have come back. And so they, they slaughter the fattened calf and there's this whole celebration. And the only reason I bring this, the only reason I bring this parable up is because that is the energy with which the father forgives us. He wants to forgive us. Notice that he noticed his youngest son when he was still a far distance off. That only happens if you're looking for something, Right. That son could have snuck right up on that property if the father wasn't watching, but he was watching. He probably watched day and night for the return of his son. He probably prayed unceasingly for the return of his son. And finally, when he came, he ran out to meet him because he was overjoyed that the son who had died was back to life again. And so if you're, if you're sitting there and it's been a long time since your last confession and you're just wondering, gosh, like, the Lord cannot forgive me or he doesn't want to forgive me. I've just, I've done too much harm. I've done too much damage. I don't know how to put this bluntly. Get over it. <laughs> just get over it, man. Like the Lord wants to forgive you. I promise you. It doesn't matter what you did. I don't, I don't the excuses that are running through your mind right now. Yeah. But it's like, and it doesn't even matter if you're ready to dive back in or not. Like just go to confession. It's, it's a start. You know what I mean? Because before confession, you're kind of in a dangerous place. You're in a precarious location and the Lord wants to bring you back into his fold. He wants to bring you back as a son or a daughter. Um, and so that's kind of, that's where the Lord is on that. I'll add another data point and um, uh, to that, to that kind of line of thinking, St. Faustina, who is one of the, one of, one of the greatest saints of the modern church. Uh, John Paul II had a huge devotion to St. Faustina, probably because she was Polish and he was Polish and you know, the, the Polacks, they love to uh, support each other. You know, it's a little bit of like a, like a mafia, Polish mafia in the Catholic church over there. But, uh, St. Faustina was famous because Jesus appeared to her many times and she's just a very holy mystic, but Jesus appeared to her and revealed to her the divine mercy image. You know, it's like a really cheapened way to say it. And I'll have a whole episode on Divine Mercy come Divine Mercy Sunday, um, the week after Easter. But St. Faustina, St. Faustina was kind of, she would pray and and the Lord was just so hungry to forgive the sins of the world that he wanted, he wanted St. Faustina to proclaim the, 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 the grandeur of his mercy to the whole world. And so that, that was a lot of the discussion between Faustina and the Lord. And the Lord said that all the sins of the world, and imagine that. Just think, just take a brief little reflective moment to imagine all the sins of the world. I mean, my sins are bad enough and they make me shudder, but then you consider everything evil that everyone has done. I mean, 
do, should I name names? <laughs> you know, it's like hi- historical figures who have done horrific things. I mean, um, just gosh, uh, I mean, Hitler alone, just murdering millions of people um, just out of sheer hatred and disgust and racism. And, you know, like it's like you can imagine all the sins in the world. And you, and you can maybe just think about people in your lives. Like who is the worst person in your life? Like think about the person who you think has done the war, absolute worst things ever. All of those sins. So the Lord says every sin that has ever been committed and will ever be committed is like a drop in the ocean of my mercy. That's what the Lord says. Every sin that has ever been committed and will ever be committed is like a drop in the ocean of my mercy. Man. That's powerful. That's powerful to say the least. Our Lord wants to forgive your sins. Do not avoid the confessional. And, um, yeah, I think this is a good place to break. This is a good time. And we'll come back next week for an episode, a continuation of the conversation between me and John. And we'll talk about the practicals of confession. Let's get nitty gritty. You know, what does it look like? How has the best way to go and do a confession? Um, all those kinds of things. And so if you're wondering like, hey, what, where do I go from here? Um, just wait one week for the next episode and we'll we'll get after it. But thank you guys so much for joining us this time. John, thank you. Yeah. You have something to say? Yeah, Yeah. I'd like to point one thing in. Yeah, please. I feel like that prodigal son image, it's probably one of the more famous things we see in our faith. I know non-Christians who are very familiar with that story. And I feel like it's because it's so we're so familiar with it, we become blind to it at times. Oh, yeah. And we have to remember. I just want to encourage everyone because it's something I really need to hear is go to confessional. It's okay. Um, you're not the worst sinner probably that they've seen in there. You're not unique. Go in. He loves you. He's going to welcome you with open arms. Run into it. Amen. And on those words, God bless you guys and have a great week. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Epiphany Podcast. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. 